When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. talking grouse hunting today with fritz heller and as fritz likes to say buckle up it's gonna be a good one thanks for tuning in to episode number 195 All right, welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, as always. we got an awesome conversation with Fritz Heller coming your way in just a moment. I will briefly thank all the Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Got a bunch of new ones last week. Got to get those Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers out the door. Put up a new bonus episode with Nick Adair of Gundog It Yourself Podcast. That's available at the Patreon page. All patrons are eligible for the monthly giveaways, discounts, at Upland Institute, Gumleaf USA, and you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, please rate, review, subscribe, follow, share the podcast, whatever you can do in the podcast app that you are listening on. Just takes a moment and is always helpful to the Birdshot podcast. Appreciate taking a minute to do that. And keep sending in those questions for Justin McGrill. I got a bunch of them now. We're getting very close to having a pile big enough, I would say, to get Justin scheduled, but there's still time. If you have hunting season related bird dog questions for Justin McGrail, whose teachings can be found over at uplandinstitute.com, the video series that him and Ron Bame set up, send those in to me, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Let's keep those coming in for the time being until I get that interview scheduled. All right, October 19th today, I talked to Fritz last week. So we were kind of looking ahead to prime time at that point. Now I would say 
we are officially in it. We had some weather come through last weekend, had the first snow on both Friday and Saturday morning. We woke up to snow coverage here and across pretty wide sections of the upper Great Lakes. I was surprised at how widespread it actually was, but the ground is still plenty warm and that snow really wanted to melt quickly. So it melted all the way off on Friday. Then we got more of it Friday night. There was there Saturday, it melted off again. We had a lot of wind a couple days after that. Now it pretty much blew itself out of here. And now we've got the woods have really cleaned up. Temps have stabilized a bit. We're going to get a little warm this weekend, but oh well. Too cold, too warm. Can't complain about the weather. This is it. This is the prime time in the grouse woods. And I hope all of you out there are getting to spend some time in it. So on today's episode, hopefully you're driving up to bird camp or preparing for a hunt this weekend. We've got a good one for you with Fritz Heller, former guest of the show. He's been on a couple times, a rather well-known grouse hunter from Michigan. He and his brother and their buddies all tend to run labs and they are avid, avid grouse hunters. Fritz has a ton of experience, which anybody that has heard his previous episodes will know that. And he's got a lot to share on the topic of grouse hunting, which you will hear on today's show. Fritz has always been one of those people that is willing to share some of his knowledge and insights to others, kind of no matter where you are on the spectrum of grouse hunting, whether you're just getting started or you've been doing it for a long time. He's always made that clear to me as the host of this podcast, and I'm always appreciative of that when my guests are willing to give up some time out of their busy days and schedule to come on here and chat upland bird hunting in hopes of helping others out there. So we're going to jump into it today. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation, given the timing of it. And hopefully you pick up a thing or two that you can test and implement on your upcoming grouse hunts. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot Podcast, Fritz Heller. All right, buddy, we're rolling on birdshot podcast fritz heller thanks for joining me once again thanks for coming back on the show buddy thanks for having me nick happy october yes yes it is october 11th today we're chatting uh the leaves are falling i got some i got some leaf work in my future today because it's going to be i think it's going to be 67 here in duluth so i'm taking a day off from the woods and going to get some of that dreaded yard work done fritz how about you uh our leaves are are we are probably approaching peak color Mm. on the eastern shore of lake michigan where i kind of reside if you go further towards i-75 they're probably at peak color uh there are not a lot of leaves down where i'm at which is pretty typical we normally don't see real thinned out woods until you know october 20th and then we really don't have the majority of our leaves down until I don't know, sometime between the 25th and Halloween yep. in the lower peninsula of Michigan. So, and certain trees give up the leaves more than others. Yep. Um, I will tell you that uh, four of the best purchases I've ever made in my life, uh, one of them is a backpack leaf blower. Ooh, the Jedi pack, yes. my dad calls those. <laughs> yes. One of the greatest purchases I've ever made in my life. That along with the utility trailer and a few other things. So <laughs> I like that. I I have a I just have the handheld one and it's I'm not I'm not uh I'm not all in on the backpack, but I will take that recommendation from you, Fritz. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to upgrade. <laughs> now let me ask you this. Do you 
take care of all of the leaves with the leaf like you got you have woods around your yard you just blowing them into the woods yeah i i live i live on uh six acres and i think we've talked before you know i get a fair amount of grouse yep moving through my property so i i live in the woods i am in a, a dog fight with my wife because i want to have a heavy thinning done <laughs> i have a mix of ironwood and maple okay and a little bit of oak and jack pine and aspen and i'm just tired of living in the dirt i mean it's just dirty living in the woods all the time and my trees need to be thinned out they're yeah. kind of getting to that age and Need i'm like yeah it's gonna be in. it's gonna be ugly for a couple of years honey but i mean sunlight is is a blessing and so i blow them straight into the woods and then at the cottage i've got a low area uh kind of to the the south of of the cottage and i blow them right into that okay. low area so i don't have to tarp them up or sometimes i got to get a tarp out to you know transport them but i don't have to burn them or right. bag them or any of that i mean jesus pete it would be hundreds of bags yeah yeah i can imagine that and that's i'm in a somewhat similar situation i've got sort of wood buffer around most of my property so i i can do that i did more of it we put a fence up in our backyard and i know we were talking about fences at one point so now i've i've got a i have to take care of them a little bit but i i also mulch them up with the lawnmower i'll, I'll just go mm -hmm. over them with the lawnmower and i've I right. read somewhere that that can be not a terrible thing for your lawn. So I do a little of that too. I think too. there's a, a happy balance between mulching them all up and mulching some of them up. Yes. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. It's interesting. I was going to ask you, do you, so do you feel like you said the, your comments kind of suggest that nothing too much out of the ordinary. Do you feel like it's at all like a later leaf drop yet or just, or you wouldn't say no, that? No, I, I almost think maybe it's a hair early interesting. on the, on the color at least on the color. Now okay. we've we've we are as dry as we've been in a long, long time really? here. After a period of high water, I mean, we had we did we had a, a drought for the most part this summer, and then it just hasn't rained a whole lot. I hunted yesterday, and man alive, I mean, fifty degrees, and the dogs are uh, you know panting because yep. it's bright sun and it's just dry it's just dry and we could use some rain. Yeah. It's a, that's amazing how like, that dry, you get a little bit of dry and then that sun is out and yeah, it almost doesn't matter what the temp is. They, they get hot right. real fast. I was in the woods yesterday too. And it was, it was not, it was a little warmer than that here. It wasn't, it wasn't 60, but I ran Hartley in kind of the late afternoon and we were, we were warm and you know, we weren't hunting big shady timber either, which might have right. been smart, but we found found a bunch of birds, so that, I guess that's okay. <laughs> I wasn't hunting big shady timber either, and I found a bunch of birds yesterday too. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna jump into some stuff here, but I wanted to get your take. So last year, basically, just just walk me through last year. Like like, what did you see last year, and what were your expectations leading up into this year? Because I the last sort of update I got from you, I was reading one of your posts on Upland Journal, and you had. Basically, you were saying, like, in your adult life, like, you had never hunted so little up to that point in the season, and you had taken your Minnesota trip, and you had seen some things, but then never really heard from you after the, you know, through the rest of the season. So, what was your take on last year, and, and then what were, you, what were your expectations leading into this year? I mean, I'm genuinely starting to wonder if there's a cycle anymore. Just kind of, every, everything seems planed out, basically? Uh, it, it, it seems, it seems to have become, I mean, I do feel I experienced a peak cycle 
around that, at least in Michigan, around that 11 to 14 range, mm-hmm. you know, where I saw it grow in 8, 9, 10, probably peaked in 11, you know, and then it was really pretty good, 11, 12, 13, and then, you know, started to climb a little bit in 13, started to climb a little bit in 14, and then we had really tough years in 15 and 16. Yep. And then if you remember, 17, well, I think, was the season that everybody expected based on drumming counts yes. and blah, blah, blah. And that was the year that would just seem like it reset everything again. And it set and off the West got, Nile virus, paranoia, and yes, all that. Yes, yep. all that. Yep. And so, you know, we didn't have what I would call a peak in 20 or 21, or, or in 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. But 21 was really good. Okay. I was really good everywhere I went. Was it, was it world-class? Have I had better years? Yes. But coming off of what were pretty tough years in 17, 18, 19, a little better in 20. And then all of a sudden 21 was really good in, in it. And at the end of last season, I had really high expectations for this year because we haven't had a dry real dry nesting year in a long time. I had high expectations for this year. Everything was late though. It seems to me that with this climate change that we don't have as much spring and we don't have as much fall. Hmm. It feels like winter starts late, you know, fall starts later. Yeah. Summer's hanging on. Summer hangs on later and then falls a shorter window. And then we get into winter and it feels like it's still winter until well into April and sometimes well into May. And so at the end of last season, I don't hunt much in December because I coach so much hockey. And at some point I need to see my wife and she wants to take a trip South at some point, (laughs) you know, even if it's for four or five days, because we don't see each other starting when school starts anymore. But yeah, I did get to hunt a little bit in December. And I, when I go out in December, it is to exercise the dogs. It is not to stack up any numbers. And yeah, I was shocked at the amount of birds that I was moving right before our deer season. And then shocked at the number of birds I moved in December. Yeah. And in December, I'm not driving to choice a covers. Sure. It's a thing of convenience for me. Yep. And I felt like there was a lot of birds. I did not hear hardly any drumming this spring, but it was cold. And, yep. and, you know, not necessarily really wet. It was very dry, but the frost never came out of the ground in a long time. Uh, my buddy Scott Grosh has this theory about when the frost comes out in nesting success, and he came up with this on his own, and it seems to make some logical sense to me. Uh, but, again, I'm not a biologist. So what's the, what's the main principle there of, like, it's, like, later, later frost? It pushes either the nest back or the grouse nest, the grouse nest in leaf litter. And if the ground's still frozen, what's the impact to those first three, four, five eggs that are laid in the mm. bottom of that nest? Mm. Okay. Yep. I mean, there's a reason why in when they raise, you know, eggs in captivity, that they they turn them right, they yep. roll them. Yep. So, uh, you know, I don't know, but I know that the frost came off late. And at some point, if I have time, Gruss was talking about like going back and looking at his numbers and then looking at when the frost came out in his county that year. Oh, okay. Yep. So I had really high expectations going into this season and uh, the hatch was definitely late. Yep. And I will tell you that it was the slowest first 10 days of the season we've ever had. That's interesting. I mean, 
slow. I found some broods this summer. I didn't look real hard. And, uh, you know, again, conditioning my dogs is now more about conditioning and convenience to me than it is actually going out in the woods and doing any scouting. Yep. And yep. with my flushing dogs and the feeling that the hatches are getting later every year, I just don't feel comfortable taking them out there until, um, you know, August 1st at the earliest. Yep. And August 15th, I'm even more comfortable. So I had high expectations going into this year. Now, we did have a cold snap a couple weeks ago where we got like four days of rain. And then, and it's been hot again. Yep. I mean, losing three or four days a week to, to heat because... I'm just not taking my dogs out when it's 70 degrees. Yep. I don't, I don't enjoy it either, let alone them. And now since that cold snap, it appears that we have pretty good bird numbers. I would say if you looked at my notes, I've hunted even less than I did last year. I'm looking kind of at my notes right now in preparation of this, but I've, I've, I've shot more birds you know, from the opener until the 10th of October than I did last year, and yeah. I've moved more birds. Now, that had to happen with a couple of pretty good, perfect weather Thursdays and Fridays that Rick and I had. Yeah. But it feels like there's plenty of birds. I, I shot four birds yesterday, and they were all this year's birds. I have not killed an adult. Rick killed an adult last week with me. Maybe I killed one adult. I take that back. But they were all young birds yesterday, and one of them was what I would expect the first week of the season, you know, size-wise. Size yep, gotcha. Right. Yeah. The other ones were pretty good, healthy birds that are, are about, you know, where they should be mm -hmm. this time this time of the year. So, yeah, I, I still think that if we get the right weather and we could get some rain, that we would be happy to... Uh, I, I think that I, I don't know yet that we are for sure that our birds are shuffling for sure right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a great, that's a great primer. I, a couple things, like there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm sort of nodding my head because the storyline there is, is really aligning with, with what I'm seeing in, in some ways, would you say at all that now you talked about having pretty dry summer drought, is the cover at all thicker or heavier over there or not, not so much this year? I would say it's a normal cover year. Okay, gotcha. I, I wouldn't say it's – I we still had some timely rains, and our water table, while it has dropped, it, it is still pretty strong here in Michigan. You know, we are, we are still at above average Great Lakes levels, above average inland lake levels. But, you know, the, the lake at my cottage is 100% spring-fed, and yeah. as Lake Michigan rises and falls, it rises and falls, and – we we added two we added you know two to four yards of of you know water drop in the last year yeah yeah at the cabin so i would say cover is normal whereas you know for the last couple of years it's been just unbearable yeah but we had we had much more you know rains in the summer i this is it we are in a we are having a world-class soft mass crop this year mm, the only yep. the, the our apples our apples our pin cherries did extremely well um all variety i mean i'm walking by trees i apple trees and spots i didn't know there was crab apples right. or, or thorn apples in there <laughs> yeah uh the only thing that seemed to have suffered is our dogwood 
And I will still continue to hunt dogwood, especially come November, late October, because it's just such good stem density. Yep. And it typically grows in low areas, but we did not get a lot of dogwood. Do berries. you know? Do you know any like any of the mechanism that would would make dogwood suffer when thorn apples are booming? I, I have no idea. I, I I don't fully know either. Other than it makes sense to me because dogwood grows in areas that hold seasonal water. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, maybe because. Now I've, I was talking to my friend Bailey, and she said she saw a lot of berries on dogwood earlier. And I think they tend to come; the, those berries can come off early. But I've seen a lot of dogwood around here in Duluth. In like I'm noticing it, but the the berries never seemed to didn't seem to fruit out. So I I kind of yeah, saw I, saw a similar thing. You know, we get that gray dogwood, or mm-hmm. red osier, and gray dogwood is our primary dogwood here. Yep, and and it just there's not much of it. But the apple crop, yeah, thorn apples, crab apples, uh, wild old farmstead apples. I, I mean, it is, it's like nothing I've seen in in a decade. I think, yeah. I and would... the birds are not our birds are not using it, which is traditional too. They won't really start to key in on that stuff until later in the year or some bit. hard frost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would agree with that fruit. Yeah, we've. I've, I'm driving to. I just was, drove my son to school, and I'm seeing. People have baskets out at the curb saying free deer apples, which you can't right, ba- can't right. bait deer in Minnesota, but they're they're handing them out. <laughs> yeah. You you can. It doesn't mean people don't. Right, right. Well you can you know, you can plant an apple tree, you just can't throw right. a few, few apples out. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so then I would agree again, felt like we had a late spring, late like winter hung on forever this year, but what the thing that I kind of noticed, and it, I feel like it was right around June, and I'm not, you know, I didn't, I don't write this down in a journal or anything, so it's based on my my memory at this point. But I felt like when summer hit around the beginning of June, it just it snapped, and it was like there was no battle between spring, summer, winter. It was just right. it warmed up quick, and generally speaking, it felt like good hatch conditions. And we must have had, I mean, we had that timely rain as well. Cause again, the fruit crop is good. I feel like the cover, like our raspberry patches and like grass and weeds, I mean, they're all still up basically, even though we've right. had some frost. So it, it, and it may be more to do with that where it just feels really thick for the 11th of October at this point, but there's right. a lot of, there's a lot of vegetation out there and what I wanted to capture there was that like you, it felt like a very slow start to the season, despite the fact that I'd been hearing lots of reports, you know, people, lots of people out in the woods, driving ATVs, seeing birds, like the amount of positive reports I heard just did not seem to be indicative of like, like how, how much of a struggle and a grind my first handful, five to 10 hunts felt like in the woods. But now my last couple days out, have been i've been seeing bird numbers that are like doesn't feel like an accident i mean we're getting leaves off and covers coming down and yeah i i'm right there with you it feels like feels like the birds are out there but it's just been a strange setup to the start of the season so far yeah our blackberry crop was not great this year either my wife loves to pick pick the wild blackberries at our house and kind of in the neighborhood and it was not it wasn't awful but it wasn't it wasn't great our our blackberries stay up. I mean, it, it becomes a vital piece of ground cover for us in the lower peninsula as the season wears on. 
So it's it's an important component to our hunting, whether there's blackberries on it or not. Normally right. the blackberries are gone by the middle of September for the most part. So I it, it just I think the apple crop, if I could make any comment, would be that we didn't have a warm up and then we in a frost, right? We didn't have a yes when they when they bloomed, there was no frost that's after right. the after yep. the bloom. Yep. So I'm guessing that's why the apple crop is so good everywhere. Yeah. Yep, that would make sense. All right, so let's we're going to transition a little bit here from the from setting up the season. I want to talk about something. It was a comment that I read in one of your posts last year about identifying patterns. And when you came over to, and I, I know you're a big fisherman and and guy, you know fly fisherman in particular, talk about patterns. And it's just uh, I'm, something I've been thinking about in your comments about identifying a pattern for the birds and sticking to it when you find something that works, can you jump in there and t- talk to me? Like, how do you think about pattern and, and what are some of the things you're looking for to identify something that you can then go sort of replicate elsewhere? Well, just, you know, just to give an example, I, I, I'm a big steelhead fisherman. Yep. So it is fascinating that some days the fish are in the head of the run, all the fish you hook are at the top of that hole or that run. And some days they're in the middle and some days they're in the bottom. Mm. And I think it's an indicator of are, are the fish moving, which would have them kind of nosed up to the top. Do they want, they want to be moving if they're nosed up to the top and maybe they're not because of conditions, daylight, uh, shallow water, whatever, yep. or are they just kind of, are they just kind of happy and, and parked in the middle uh, or are they being hyper aggressive, which is when you find them in the bottom. Typically the bot, the fish in the tail outs in the bottom are typically the ones that, you know, want to play the most. So I look at grouse season as there's really five seasons within a grouse season. And so here in Michigan, you know, our grouse season is September 15th yep. to November 14th and then December one to January one. And uh, you've got early season, which is when everything's super thick, super green, yeah. birds are still brooded up. Then you have the shuffle, which can be boom or bust. When the broods are really breaking up, there's been more and more pressure out there. There's a little bit of cover starting to die. Then you have leaf drop, which can be the most unbelievably frustrating time of the year. That leaf drop period is when those leaves are active. It's that four or five days when those leaves are actively, consistently coming out of trees. Maybe it's rain, maybe it's wind. It typically takes a weather event to bring them down. And then you've got that glorious, what we call bare November, which is the more and more experience I got as a grouse hunter is the time I want to be in the woods Mm -hmm. the most. And then you have the late season, which I would call really anything depending on after your first significant snowfall right significant meaning you get three inches that sticks around for four or five days even if it melts off you're still in the late season yeah it it changes the birds enough at that point right so based on my experience i'm looking different places for each one of those seasons and the special covers are the ones that hold birds through all five of those phases they might be located in different places and want to play it depends on the geographical area you're in, the, typically the size of the habitat and the cuts you're in. But those, I, I start to, I start to look at the different patterns. You know, we could not find a pattern. We couldn't find them the first two weeks of the season here, really. 
the first 10 days, we just couldn't find birds. I mean, I'm looking at my notes right now, seven, zero, eight, eight, five, and then yep. 18, 25, 100 an hour, found three, uh, 102 hours, found 10, 102 hours, found 17. You know, that's kind of been my season right there. Yep. We've lost a lot of days to heat. So when they start shuffling, uh, I think the birds started shuffling here last Friday because all of a sudden Rick and I started the morning out. It was cold. It had rained for a day and a half, which you want to hunt. If you can ever hunt, you want it to be the day after a rain mm. or the day after two or three rains because they've been holed up and they are going to yeah. come out. Couldn't find them, couldn't find them. And I pulled into a spot and Rick's like, okay, let's try. And then we moved like seven birds in that spot in like a 35 minute loop. Yep. And it's the kind of spot that I don't think very many people understand or know. I I, I don't really want to talk about the pattern <laughs> a whole lot, but Understandable. I will just tell you when, when birds are shoveling, it is a hundred percent about corridors and stem density. It doesn't matter the tree species. Stem density is stem density at that point to them because they are going to use those corridors and those travel lanes when they start to disperse, you know, away from whatever their brood brood cover was or whatever they had moved into in September as a brood that offered them the best protection, the best escape and available food and bugs. Yep. So... So, you know, right now I think we're in a shuffle pattern and they're either in those corridors or they're not, you know, it can be a little bit of feast or famine, sure. but when you find them in those corridors, you can really find them very edgy hunt stem density. Doesn't always have to be what you, you know, you think of as classic stem density. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Broomstick ass doesn't have to, doesn't have to be real big spots either. I often wonder at, you know, I, I like big cover. I mean, who doesn't like a big cover with all that, all right. that potential that you can build up in your mind, but that can, you get too focused on that. You can, you can start to overlook some of the, some of the soft spots and the, and the pocket covers. You can really overlook that. I've, I've, I've got a, it's a, there's a forest road that I've been hunting. I used to hunt it when I was in high school actually. And I remember at that time they had done some cutting in there. So there was a lot of big open clear cuts and then I honestly didn't go back there for about 10 years. I never went in and it's, it's not all that far from town. So it's just something I kind of wrote off. Well, I went back in there last year and sure enough, it's, it's a lot of good cover and it's a big area. And there's a couple, you know, there's a couple of real logical spots where you would park to go hunt. But as mm -hmm. I drive this road, I mean, you could literally, you could park the car anywhere and hop in there and, and it's, I mean, there's nothing else around. There's no shacks. It's, it's just, right. it's just a big area of grouse country. And there's, there's birds in there. Cause that's, that's where I went a couple of days ago. And that's the first, it was like the hunt that I needed this year, the overdue hunt where I think in two hours I moved 18 grouse. It was like, that's, that's not an accident. Right. There's, there's birds in here. Right. You, you know, folks in the upper, upper Great Lakes have a bigger advantage on that then bigger covers you, we do it bigger covers yep. and you do probably mid you know then you do kind of mid wisconsin mid minnesota mid michigan yep. so to speak yep so but yeah i mean i think this year i i finally rick and i were struggling so bad that there was a couple bear hunters 
parked on the side of the road and I just turned, I pulled a Yui went and chatted with them and they were from Southern Ohio and they were up to run bear dogs. And I, I asked them, where are you seeing these, them woods chickens? <laughs> said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Them woods chickens. Says, Go down in the cedar swamp. I've been finding them there. <laughs> I, I said, sir, no offense. I've killed enough grouse in my life that I'm not walking into a cedar swamp to do it. <laughs> but, you know, so it was dry. So the birds were able to use, and it was warm this summer. So I do believe a lot of birds migrated down into our cedar swamp areas yep. and our riparian swamps. And so, you know, right now during the shuffle, if there's corridors of, of habitat, linear, uh, islands, whatever it is, around some of those cedar swamps, they're worth a look. Yep. Because I think the birds are coming out of those swamps and starting to migrate and break up and shuffle and, and you know, find their, their territory. Yep. Do you have a lot of, do you have a lot of cedar swamps? I mean, is that fairly easy for you to find? Yeah, we have tons of them. Okay. And sometimes they are gigantic. Yeah. I mean, mile, miles of them. But we think about just the number of rivers that flow into Lake Michigan sure. on the western side in the, of the lower peninsula and on the southern side of the uh, upper peninsula. There's just a lot of water, a lot of major river systems where you look at Wisconsin and, and you know, they don't have nearly. The, I mean, we ever you start in St. Joe and you drive to the bridge it's hard to go 45 miles without a significant river system dumping into Lake Michigan. Right. Yep. The, you know, you just don't have that in Wisconsin and, and certainly in, in Minnesota, even you go up the North shore, there's what, four or five creeks, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So those cedars love rivers and love that soil and love sand. And yep. And you get into those big swamps. Yeah. I, and I would, yeah, I would say, you know, we, We've got plenty of cedar here, but it's not, it doesn't feel like maybe as abundant as you're describing it. And, and I always, I always take note, like when I see it, because it's something that, you know, Ann has mentioned as escape cover, and it's something that I associate with sort of the right kind of soil. And again, the, the cover that I was explaining, that actually is a perfect, it's like this, it's like this island of high ground that rises up out of a cedar swamp. And that island of high ground, which is a big area, has been all pretty much cut over, you know, in sometime in the last right. 20, 30 years. I mean, there's there's sections of mature uncut timber as well. It's just got the mix. And, I mean, you can go – you could put yourself on a cedar swamp edge and be there all day if you wanted. And I don't right. think that's a, an accident, again, that, that there's birds in there. I mean, there's one cedar swamp uh, around my area that – it's a mile wide and four miles long. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's just, you know, going in it is, you know, I'm not going to go in it. Yeah. 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 The grouse don't mind cedar though. That's for sure. But that's, yeah. They, well, there's blowdowns in there and there's, you know, it's not just cedars growing down in there. I mean, yep. there's a lot of uh, comfort for them down there, mm -hmm. but if there's water in it seasonally, yep. You know, they're not, you know, they could be living in their hummock to hummock at times, but yeah, yep. that's what, you know, that's what replenishes everything else. There's, there's, they're probably safer in the cedar swamp than they are. That's right. Any other place in Michigan. Yep. Yep. So, all right. So patterns talking about that a little bit. So you hit on a couple things there again, where, I mean, specifically during the shuffle, you're looking for stem density and corridor. You're not so much thinking about thorn apples or food or, 
or anything no. like that. It's it's stem density. Where are these birds? They're they're moving. They're moving around the forest. They're dispersing, so they need to feel protected. And they're not. They're maybe not in there having their. You know, it's not where they're deciding to set up shop. So you're focusing right. more on stem density and corridors. Correct. Okay. And then I re- then I repeat it right. So a typical morning would be to start out in what we'd think of as classic thermal cover. Uh, you know, just an average morning. So I'm going to probably go into an, an aspen cut, right? And that's going to be the first spot I hunt in the morning. Birds have gone back there to roost or, or they've roosted along the edge of it somewhere in pines and, and whatnot. And they drop down and walk into it because it's safe yep. and there's food in there. And then, you know, that would be a thermal cover. And then as the day wears on, maybe they're wet. Maybe they want to be out in the open a little bit more and dry out. You just start working through it, and then when you start consistently finding them, and, and, and if that doesn't work, then I'm going to try something else. Yep. I think they move around far more than we want to give them credit, and I think they, they are grouped up, they disperse, and then they group back up again, and they group back up again in the late season because Correct. they're yep. going to the best available cover for their survival. The woods have really thinned out at that point. Yep. Right, and so... And then when I get on that pattern, I just stay on it. Yep. And it's fascinating how some patterns change year to year to year. Some of that's based on food source and cover availability. Some of it's based on what, how good was the hatch. You know, was there was did a big May storm or June storm miss half a county and right. clobber the southern half of it? You know, and so once you find out where they're kind of living on that day or, and it really, it typically holds up unless there's, if you get stable weather. So the shuffle pattern, I expect to hold up for the rest of the week Mm -hmm. this week, unless we get some significant weather, a big storm or cold front or something, you know, that, that changes it, but it's being flexible day in and day out. I don't specifically really start targeting food until mid-October and then it's always the the hour before the last hour of the day when they're going for the big feed yeah when they're they're going to put it on and you know they're easier to kill when they got a full crop Mm -hmm. yep yep but if you get into that food and they've been pressured at all and they haven't eaten yet they'll they'll be out of there I mean they're hard to get close to yeah and birds can be jumpy during the flush during the shuffle yesterday I was on a hundred percent shuffle pattern I, I had two and a half hours to be on the ground and, you know, I was surprised at how many birds were pretty jumpy, pretty runny, but mm. that's typical. They're, they're nervous because they're moving out of where they've been yep. for probably months. I, I would say over my last couple hunts, I've had very, uh, birds with a real tendency to run moving and yeah. moving and running. I, ki- I actually killed a, I killed a big, a beautiful male bird two days ago, and Hartley, he pointed that he either moved. It was two or three times he he moved on it, and I'm actually surprised we got it. We got it pinned. I was able to cut this bird off, and he put it up, and then we circled back through, and Hartley went on point nearby, and it was it was this big drumming log. There was his poop poop was on it. It was right under a yellow birch tree, just a perfect spot. I mean, that was his, that was his ground and he'd been there. Right. He'd been there for a while. I love seeing that stuff, but yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of, a lot of moving and running birds and they know they're, yeah, like you said, they, they know they're kind of exposed. They're not in their home turf at this point. Right. 
And then when the leaves start blowing out of the trees, you might as well go do something else <laughs> I, I have found. I mean, you think they you get extra jumpy get then extra jumpy. Yep. And then when the, when, when you get that event where they're all gone, that's the, that's a glorious week where they get real sticky and they're in the kind of cover. You kind of want to hunt them in, mm. you know, the walk-ins a little easier. And, and, you know, if you get, if you get a big rain, big storm that takes out all the trees and those woods are wet, and those leaves are gone, those birds will hold that week as good as they will the first week of the year when you find them. I, I mean, it is it is wonderful thing. Yeah. You get your best dog work. It's typically cold. Yep. There's good scenting conditions. And that it's really fun to just have that time and the, that really good dog work. And so there's, there's the following the leaf drop, that first week of kind of bare November is, you know, can be really, really good hunting. Yeah. Yep. And and a lot of people are started to burn up their vacation by then. Mm-hmm. They were pretty antsy to go. They're thinking about deer hunting. There could also be uh, ten inches of snow in the woods that week I too. Know. You know, you ne- you yep. never know. So yeah, every day is precious. We've all seen the seasons, and right. You know, we've been pretty fortunate the last few years. I feel like to have conditions hang on pretty late. We've had well, a couple couple years ago when we left Minnesota. I mean, we drove through a blizzard. Yep you know, through Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin and the Western UP coming home, like a blizzard, blizzard, like December, January. And that was in October. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So my buddy, Kevin Shepard, he's a forester uh, for the national forest. So he likes, he always likes to say you should hunt grouse where you, where you can hunt them or where you can get a shot at them. You know, like he, he knows places where you can kind of like you're talking about with the cedar swamp, like, you know, you could go in there and find grouse, but you're you're going to be putting yourself and your dogs through torture. So I mean, do you have a do you have a tendency to kind of go where you feel like you can hunt them and shoot them? I do, yes, but at the same time, it depends on the cover. Yeah, I have an advantage that my dogs will send me birds. Yes, that's true. I don't have to necessarily go in there <laughs> all the time, and you know, the, my dogs are sending me birds out of spots that you couldn't walk into and shoot. Yep. Yep. You could walk into and hope that you're helping your buddy. Exactly. Yeah. Taking you one know, for the which, team. Right. But you couldn't shoot. So it all depends. I mean, I, I, I don't want to murder my dogs or murder myself up too bad. It's hard enough with all the gear we have on and the amount of steps and miles we put on daily. But yep. I would rather have a cover that I move three killable birds in it than move eight that you know i you got a glimpse saw. of one yeah right i got a glimpse of one and so i i want a pine component in most of my covers but i don't want it to be 50 percent pines mm-hmm. that can get frustrating you know so so yes and no i guess is the answer the more linear and thicker and narrower the cover is whether it's penetrable for me or not I'm I'm happy to send the dog in there. Am I if I'm going in for a different kind of walk in a block cover, then I want it to be a shootable cover. It's one of the reasons that we go to the UP and and over to Minnesota most years this time of the year because your folks' leaves are all the way down and yep. we can hunt them in the type of cover we want to hunt them. Yep. Where our birds are getting to that stage right now where they're getting real jumpy, real scared, and we still have eighty percent of our leaves up. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That that's kind of what i was expecting to hear i guess and yeah knowing that knowing that your dogs can can penetrate some of that cover that that you or i can't 
is you've got right. that you've got that advantage for you. But again, you're you're kind of you know you're floating out on the edge of it. You know you can move, you can you can shoot right. versus plowing through broomstick aspen just to say I popped it, up ten grouse. You know, and there's you have to be patient in that situation. No mm. different than you know you go out to the Dakotas on those really big pheasant years or those in you know somebody slams a car door and there goes 30 of them or yeah. 80 of them sometimes. But if you just go out there and be quiet and be patient and just kill the ones you can kill and don't worry about the rest. And so, you know, yesterday they were a little jumpy and a little flighty, but I killed the four I could kill. I missed another one. And, you know, eventually one of them's going to make a mistake, but you know, I had a stretch where I had like eight birds yesterday, go out the other side, you know, I just, I could, all I could do is hear them. Couldn't even see them. Yep. And, and so, but you just be patient. All right, good. There's birds here. I'll be able to come back here in a couple of weeks, you know, but you've got to have enough covers in your inventory that when you find a pattern, you can try and repeat it. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, you start finding them on food all of a sudden at two o'clock or you're coming through a cover in late October and there's a, a, a row of apple trees or a row of gray dogwood or whatever. And all of a sudden you get there and, you move six out of that and you'd move one on your way to it. Well, you better be going to a gray dogwood spot, mm-hmm. you know, right after that. So, so how many, that's a, that's a good, that's a good example there. How many, you know, if you're walking, so you start out your hunt, you flush one bird, you're paying attention to every, every bird you flush. But right. the, the takeaway there is, you know, you might flush one here, you might flush one that, you know, we, we always know we can flush a flush a bird in this cover, but if you flush six, that's a light bulb better to be turning on. Correct. Yeah. What are they in and why? And then if I can do it two covers in a row, mm-hmm. then I really, I really have an idea of where I should be. So then, yeah. So then you're out, then you, you've got your hypothesis. Then you go to the next spot that you know, ha- contains some of the similar components that you're looking at. Right. You prove it again, you're onto something. And, and this, obviously we're talking about an average or above average bird year. Yeah. When, the, when we have those bad years with a bad nest or a down cycle, there is zero rhyme or reason to it. You got to just go out, walk them. You're going to hit some, you're going to miss some. You got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to, I had mentioned this to Fritz before we started. I, I, we've done some question and answers in the, in a few recent episodes with Ann Jandernon last week with Brady Martin. And I'm going to, I'm going to cherry pick some of these questions for Fritz and just shoot them by him because he's got, 
a lot of experience, hunts a, hunts a little different region than myself and, and, and our listener Brady did. So I think it would be cool to get Fritz's take on some of this stuff. Um, I, I just happened to, my eyes went to this one. This was a question that somebody wrote in for the Ann interview. And I know that we would have just glazed over this one, Fritz, but I'll, I'll run it by you. I own a flushing dog. How is the best way to go about starting to hunt in the grouse woods? What thoughts come to mind? <laughs> uh, so how I would go about it, this assumes the dog is gun broke, been introduced to birds, had a few birds shot over it. You know, is this a training question or is this is about how I go about that cover? I think it's, I think it's, I own a flushing dog. How is the best way to go about starting to hunt in the grouse woods? Yeah, I think, I think he's really talking about how do I get my flushing dog started in grouse hunting what things should should i be thinking about to set the dog up for success the advantage you have is you can walk the easiest path through the woods and let your dogs go find birds and take you to them yeah i need to put my dogs in the best position to find birds so what is the most likely areas in that cover to hold birds so let's say it's a 40 acre cut It butts up to a swamp on one edge. It butts up to a field on another edge. It butts up to a road and it butts up to some mature hardwoods. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get on that edge and I'm going to walk around the entire edge. I'm going to walk along the cedar swamp. Then I'm going to walk along the hardwood edge. Then I'm going to walk along that field edge back out to the road because I parked on the road. Then if there's some different characteristic in the middle of it or in that cover, if there is a little swale of alder, is there, you know, a group of pines, mm-hmm. then I'm going to walk to those and then I'm going to get out of there and go to the next one and try. The only way I really genuinely learned how to do it was to do it and do it and do it and do it some more. Yep. Just to put your boots on and go and if I have a young flushing dog, I'm doing my best to let that dog learn where birds live and to work. And if I don't get a shooting opportunity, that's fine. I have a decade to get shooting opportunities over this dog, but it needs to learn that, you know, there's a pine tree over there. I need to run over there. Yep. Rick and I got into a spot the other day, heavy with apples, didn't find a single bird, but both of us are like, I got a hot dog. I got a hot dog. I'm convinced that those dogs smell the apples and know that in the past they've associated finding grouse with those apples and Mm. whatever is in their brain triggers that action where they're a little bit more excited. So I'm going to, I'm going to work the edge, work the edge, work the edge, work the edge. And then I'm going to walk to some kind of different cover. So I'm trying to hunt the micro within the macro environment. I don't know if that, that answers the question. I mean, the only thing that's going to teach you is, experience 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 and i listened to your interview with brady and it Mm -hmm. talked about something and you know i've got over 200 and some covers in the northern lower michigan that i think are productive doesn't count covers that i have saved that i haven't even been in yet but i would tell a new grouse hunter to maybe you know don't beat your cover to death but maybe pick 12 pretty big covers and try and hunt them once a week don't shoot them out if you don't have to, but you know, I, I've never been terribly worried about a big area shooting a cover out, mm-hmm. but go in and learn what changes in that cover 
week to week throughout the season, maybe you go into it one, maybe you go into it five times that season. And then you'll start to learn, okay, when I move a bird, where does it, what direction does it go based on the time of the year? Or am I always kind of moving birds in the same spot in this cover? And now when I go to a new cover, it's like, oh, well, this looks a lot like cover XYZ that I've hunted four times or I've hunted eight times in the last two years. And there's in this spot, this corner, this little whatever, it, it seems to, you know, so you can start to pattern birds that way, yep. right? Yep. I, I I would encourage people to walk and walk and walk and try and try and try new stuff. But when you find a productive 10 or 11 covers, keep going into them and see how they evolve and change throughout the season. And then really learn what you've learned and your home rank to apply to like the away game, right? Yep. I, I think that's, that is absolutely awesome insight. And that was... That was something, Brady, I don't know if we covered it on the interview, but I remember him asking me this. Uh, it was in his questions about if I found birds in a spot this week, should I let it rest or should I go back? And what I was going to tell him, and again, I don't think this was in the interview, was as a, where he was at with his grouse hunting, go back there a week later. You know, I mean, right. be, be mindful if you went in there and shot five birds or something and flushed 10, you know, but... Don't be afraid to go back to do exactly what you're saying, Fritz. Get some confidence in in that spot. Learn that spot. Learn the places where you flushed a grouse this week. You flushed it next week. You flushed it two weeks from that date. That's how you that's how you start to see that. Now that was something I was thinking about yesterday. I was walking in the woods. How uncanny! I think I was walking past the spot where I flushed a grouse the year before, and I mean it's not an accident that you flush grouse in the same spots year after year, but it's sometimes right. it just seems strange and uncanny. It's like, what do they like about this spot? You know, cause it doesn't look all that different from a hundred other spots. Well, what's amazing to me is the cup, you know, I want covers that replenish themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And you start to see that. So, uh, you know, Rick and I typically don't hunt a cover more than twice a year, but we've got a huge list. And we're not the only ones hunting it, yep. but it, it is amazing to me that you can go into that cover on October 20th and move six. And then you go back in there on November 3rd and you move 15, mm. like what changed or, you know, but if you're not consistently doing that, when I was a young grouse hunter, I probably only had 12 productive spots and I wasted a lot of time walking a lot of stuff, yep. but I learned a lot from those 12 really productive spots. Now I'm getting old enough that they've cut them and some of those spots are starting to get better again. <laughs> yeah. I'm right there with you. I, we had a much smaller list of covers back then and I, and I would go back to them, but like, just like you're saying, I learned them. And I mean, there's, there's this, there's this one trail I'm thinking of that there was a little S curve in the trail and I couldn't tell you how many grouse we put up off that little S curve in that trail year after year. And it's just, that's how you start to learn those things and and put the pieces together i think that's a that's a great insight and again it's for the for the person that wants to learn more really what and correct me if i'm wrong but fritz is saying is don't beat yourself up trying saying i gotta hunt a new spot every day you want to it there's always got to be a balance of exploring new ground but if you're shaky or or need need a confidence boost be mindful of the birds you see and the birds you take, but don't be afraid to go back into a cover and, and learn that cover. And just understand that you'll get to a point in your career where 
okay, I killed a couple of birds in this spot this year. I don't have anything left to prove in this mm-hmm. spot. Yep. You know, then you'll have spots that are nostalgia that remind you of, you yeah. know, like I've got a spot that I protect to the nth degree to the best of my ability because not because of all the memories I've made there, but you know, a lot of my friends killed their first grouse in that spot. It just sets up so I can kind of get them a bird. You know what I mean? It wasn't the place where Harry got that bird last year, was it? No, uh, that was the spot that I just started hunting last year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was the spot I just, I, I, I had just started hunting that spot last year. That's cool. Maybe, maybe started hunting it two years late. I, I don't know. <laughs> Feeling like so. maybe the tail end. That was his. That was his first not bird. Tail end, not the tail end. Like maybe I should have gave it a look uh, a couple oh, years earlier. Gotcha. It, it, it's in its absolute prime right now. Okay. Yeah. That was his first bird on the wing, if I remember right. Was that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. cool. My buddy Ted Summer, who you know, we were out, we were on a podcast yep. together once. His his son last night just shot his first grouse on the wing. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Special times. Yep. Um, all right, I got to ask you this because. You've you've heard if you've listened to these interviews, you've no doubt heard me talk about the sand country and the clay country. And I was hunting an area last weekend to the west of here, which every time I go out there, I'm reminded that I I need to be careful in oversimplifying the sand and the clay. And I don't want people to ignore the sand stuff based on what I say because, and I think you'll have a lot to say here. You hunt over by you, Fritz. I mean. You guys pretty much have, I mean, it's a lot of sand and there's lots of birds there. So it's not like you're ignoring the sand country. What are your thoughts on that conversation? It is, um, I, I think where people get confused and I always find it fascinating. And I can see when I travel west, how that soil does have an impact. But yep. then again, one of the one of the best spots I ever hunted in Minnesota with uh, Too Tall was a sand spot. And... <laughs> But all we have, all we have is sand yep. in the in the lower peninsula. It's all we have. I, I mean, we have, you know, incredible beaches and sand dunes yep. from yep. you know shore to shore, from Lake Huron to Lake Michigan. All we have is sand. We don't have hazel underbrush. Mm-hmm. It is rare in the lower peninsula, and you know, so we are hunting a lot of bracken fern yep. and 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 oak undergrowth and maple undergrowth and blackberries and you know we so it's all we have it's all our birds know now it is fascinating to me that how fast some cuts regenerate and some how fat how slow some cuts yeah. regenerate and how some almost stall yep on that sand and rick you know rick and i talk about this with an with an area we have you know kind of in our cover inventory it's a pretty big area for the northern lower with a lot of diversity, but there's a cut in there that's 20 years old. That if you saw it, Nick, you'd think it was seven or eight years old. Yeah, just unchanged. Basically. Uh, I mean, it, it's just horrible soil in that spot for whatever reason. And there's, you know, no coincidence. There's a gravel pit down the road from it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. But there's how's, still how's a lot the of bird? birds. Up okay, there. yeah. So productivity is yeah, very, okay. very good. Yep. Yeah. They're using the stem density, but and- that's. That's one thirty-acre cut in that whole area of a lot of diversity. Yeah. So, but no, all we have is sand. I mean, you can, you know, and that's probably why. Also, though, that you know, a lot of our birds are swamp-oriented because we don't have we we have a little bit darker soil down in in the swamps where 
but you know our tree species you know cedars thrive on sand i mean they love sand and and that sand drains very very well also so that's why we hunt a lot of seasonal areas that hold seasonal water at times because it's just moisture more moisture more growth more diversity we don't we just don't have the amount of classic big aspen plats that you folks have across the upper peninsula wisconsin and minnesota we just don't have it yeah you know what about alders? Do you get a lot of alders or not so much? We do, but okay. they're very different than what you would think of as alder. Oh, okay. So we get all we get alder swamps. You guys get alder runs. Mm-hmm. So we'll get an alder swamp that can be like a big bowl. 60 yard 60 yards wide or yeah, a yeah. big bowl. Yeah. Or an oxbow in a river, you know, that's full of it. We don't get that beautiful Oh, here's a little drainage yeah. a wet area like you folks get and here's a run of alder right or you guys have that you get that grass and then alder and then aspen right yep yep we don't we don't get that okay yeah <laughs> uh, so we 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 do hunt a ton of alder especially where we can find it narrower and more linear yep for us but a lot of times our alders growing with a, another canopy above it here and if it's a dry year, you can hunt it. If it's a wet year, you can't, unless you want to wait for it to freeze up and go in there in, in December and hope there's no beavers around. Yeah. Do you get the, so like you said, the grass, you kind of like the stuff that Grush likes, that white swamp grass and the alders, like do you, do you get spots like that? We don't. Okay. No. We get white grass, but it's not like the white grass you guys have that you really associate with birds. Yeah. Gotcha. It, our grass is thicker okay, and taller. That's a December secret. Yeah. Maybe I'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I always know every time I'm, I'm hunting some of my late season stuff in that white swamp grass, I've, and I put a picture or something up, usually Grush is like, you know, he's giving me a thumbs up. I know he loves that cover. But, okay, so on the sand clay thing, not to, not to beat that horse to death, but I was glad to get your thoughts on that. And I, I, I'll just put it this way. Yeah. I always kind of smile when I hear you focused on sand and clay all the time because I never focus on it, no matter where I am. <laughs> I never even think about it. I have bracken fern spots in Minnesota that are that have been full of birds at times. Yep. yep. You don't even go into it. But that's that's your confidence, right? It, it's that, yeah. Yep, it's a confidence yeah. level and historical thinking. Yep. And, and that's what I would say there is that it's always got to be taken into context of the area as a whole. It's... It's right. really just like the more I learn about it, it's just something to notice. Like notice how the soil influences the vegetation on the ground and not to rule one out versus the other. And it's also a spectrum too. You know, there's there's really high, dry, sandy, barren areas that my buddy Kevin Shepard, he, he loves hunting that kind of stuff. And that guy knows the grouse. So I, I need to question my own thinking and, and my own confidence level when it comes to that stuff. I just find it it's interesting to observe, but what definitely wanted to hit on that as far as like the podcast goes, like you don't rule one out. You just, you can take note of it and see how that stuff influences the cover and, and changes the landscape, but the birds are using it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if there's habitat in a big sand area and that's all there is there, it doesn't mean there's not going to be grouse there. Correct. If you have a sandy 
spit next to clay, I can see why the birds are, you know, across the road, it goes up a hill or whatever, and it's sandy and more oaky. And, and at the bottom of the hill, it transitions to clay mm. and you got more aspen and alder and, and spruce. Uh, yeah, they're going to be there. You know what I mean? But if, you, if you're in a 20 mile by 20 mile area and all there is is sand, there's still going to be birds in there. Yes. If there's appropriate habitat. Yeah. So I think that when you talk about sand versus clay, some of that, that's probably more some of your discussion. Like I've got a road and I've got some high ground to the north and some low ground to the south and I'm not finding birds on the high ground but I'm finding them on the South. Well, yeah, because that, that's kind of probably a different concept than, you know, sand and clay, right? A large area. Yes. I think you're exactly right. And it's, and honestly, I never really took note of it until I started hunting some areas that literally a mile or two down the road, it's switching back and forth from sand to clay, sand to clay. And that's, that's what really brought it to my attention. And that's where I'm noticing differences in where I find birds and where I don't find birds. Not so much like when I drive a couple hours to the West and it's a real nice sort of sandy loam country all over the place that does not have the same sort of ups and downs as I see in some other areas. So yeah, that's it. Right. I will tell you a secret though. When you get into areas where you find good hay farmers. Mm -hmm. So like open pasture grounds and stuff. Not pasture ground, like they're farming hay, right? They're baling hay. Okay. And then you find grouse covers kind of in that general region. They're typically, I don't know what it is about the soil. They're typically very productive. Mm. Whatever, whatever adds up the two together. Interesting. Yeah. You know, you got the guy with 80 acres and all, and he's just growing hay on it to feed his 12 cattle. You know what I mean? Or his horses, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there's a spit of state land down the road. And, and there's in their active forest management that typically is pretty good. Yeah. Other than Aspen, what is your, are, is there, do you have a, not that Aspen's your favorite, but if you're not focusing on Aspen, is there something else you're looking for? Is there a secondary tree species that you're looking for? Or is it, does it come back to that stem density overall mix versus some single it, tree species? So I would say in the Northern lower, I spend, 25% of my time in what everybody would think is classic Aspen. 25% you said? Yep. Other than that, I'm hunting stem density. Yep. I, I'm, I'm hunting stem density. It doesn't matter what it is, dirty woods, ground cover, variety of stuff. It's just stem density. It's not anything like people would think of as classic Aspen. You know, you, you get a hardwood, you get a hardwood spot and they thinned They've thinned 80% of the trees out of it. It's like a shelter wood cut. I think they call that sometimes. Yep. And then all of a sudden the beach is coming up. Maple sprouts are coming up. Mm-hmm. It's full of blackberries. Ironwood's coming up. The occasional aspen shoot, you know, that can be very productive. Yep. There's not enough aspen in the northern lower to just grow grouse and aspen. Yep. So. All right. What do you think about, so your comment earlier when I asked you about or there's a question about the flushing dog and how to get started. The way you describe that hit on something that I think is very important. And it's just going to take this a little bit further than I think we covered it in the last episodes or where we were talking about this, but the concept of edges, it's one of these things that, you know, comes up a lot. People hear it. You, maybe your eyes glaze over, but what you described is what you're really trying to do by being on those edges is to pull in more diversity to your hunt. This is like my working theory, but you're on the edge because 
your chances of seeing a couple different things come together and finding a bird are higher than if you're walking through the middle of some sort of cut or something else. That's why we're looking for the edges. We're trying to increase our diversity that we're seeing. Would you agree with that, Fritz? A hundred percent. Because there's always typically some form of sun penetration, Mm -hmm. which increases the diversity of plant species and or that edge is always on the edge of an escape cover. Yeah. And that escape cover is fascinatingly different in where I hunt in the northern lower than it is in the western UP or where we've kind of figured out in Minnesota. The eastern UP, it's very similar to the western or to the northern lower. Mm. So, of course, if you're hunting a great-looking aspen cut and you're on the edge of a cedar swamp, that cedar swamp's their escape cover. Yep. So they're going to want to be closer to that escape cover. And that's where they are. You might not get the sun penetration on the edge of that cedar swamp that you do on the edge of a field, Mm -hmm. you know, just a kind of a sandy grass field that we get up here. And, but on that edge of that grass field, that's where you get your apples. That's where you get your blackberry. That's where you get your hawthorn, your witch hazel. Those things start to grow and the forest kind of blends together and you get that area, you know, that area is important too, especially if it's been wet for a few days and they want to dry out yep. and, and they want to get up a little higher, you know, but the, the cedar swamp is the thermal cover. That edge works really well. It doesn't have to, it can be any kind of swamp really mm-hmm. that's impenetrable, you know? So diversity grows on the edge. Yes. Yep. Why in Minnesota, they live so close to the trail. It's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it, except for last year i wonder if there's just there's a there's maybe a a lack of edges in some of that you know that big timber I right mean, big timber it's maybe not it maybe we don't have those open field areas where the thorn apples right. grow i mean less of it i don't know that's speculation but yeah and clover and strawberry mm-hmm. growing on those trails yeah you know? lots of that yep that's that's what i wanted to sort of hit on is like if you get hung up on the whole edge thing you just so like almost that doesn't mean anything to you anymore. It's diversity. It's not necessarily, I mean, it's both, but diversity grows on the edge. I like the way you put that. That's what it is. It doesn't, it doesn't mean there's not inside edges either. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. I mean, if, if there's an Aspen cut and in the middle of it, there's kind of a seasonal water pit where I'm thinking of specifically thinking of a spot in the Western UP that I hunt, you know, there's a hardwood seasonal water collection down there. Well, we hunt right through the aspen, right to that spot, and then we go around that spot. A lot of times we find birds on it. Yep. But there's days where you don't find birds at all on the edge, and they're all just parked in the middle doing whatever they're doing in there. Yeah. So then you go, all right, well, I didn't find them on the edge. I found them in the middle. So, you know, maybe I'm going to walk right down the middle, and then, you know, whoever I'm hunting with turns right, and I turn left, and we walk back out the edge. You know, who knows? Yep. It depends on how big of the spot is and, and what they're doing. But typically, I'm looking for edges no matter what, wherever I'm at. And that can be in the middle of a cover. Yep. Yeah. How? Yeah. It doesn't matter how big, how small, micro, macro, right. that sort of thing. Right. Yep. I remember last time I had you and Rick on, we talked about that concept as well. And that, again, you don't have to be on the edge of the cut necessarily. Let's say you've got, a, you've got an aspen stand where they left 10 big mature oak trees you're walking under yeah. all those oak trees because all those are going to create a little a little buffer zone underneath where there might be acorns, there's probably sunlight, that kind of thing. Right. Those are all objectives right. slash edges. Right. 
And you can typically identify those from your parking spot. Yes. You can see those big trees and, yep. you know, or your aerial map. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Never a bad idea to look at the imagery and identify a few of those things. If they're standing out on the map, they're probably worth looking at. And then once you right. get in there, that's when you're tapping into your experience level in how to identify those smaller micro things that aren't going to jump out at you on the map. I do think that like when listening to your podcast a fair amount that you're definitely more concentrated on technology scouting than I am. Then, you know, don't get me wrong. I use it. I like to look at it. It's helpful, but my eyeballs for the most part, tell me really what I want to see. I mean, I, I, I get frustrated occasionally from technology. Like, well, this looks on the aerial map, like it should be really good. And I drive there and there's no, understory or it's mm-hmm. super rocky soil or whatever you yep. know gravel soil I'll tell you that is one soil i avoid you can get burned on satellite imagery for sure well i know we're, we're getting close here i, I did want to well, ask i can i can i can keep going nick i you might okay? have to i might have to walk out of this office and go get in the car <laughs> but i i can i can keep going i got i got more time i just in 15 minutes i got to get in the car how's that that's that's okay yeah well i think we'll i think we'll finish up but i i wanted to ask you about you touched on it a little bit earlier and this was something that Brady was asking me and, and you've talked about it before. Like, when do you pull the plug? Do you have mechanisms in place for I'm in a cover? It's been 20 minutes. I haven't seen a grouse. I'm pulling the plug. And if so, why do you, you know, how do you make that decision and why do you make that decision? How do I decide if I'm going to bench a kid or if I'm going to keep playing them? Mm -hmm. So it's no different. Like, what's wrong with Andrew today? You know what I mean? Something's just not there. And what's the situation that we've got in the game? Is this an important game that we need to win? Is this the kind of game that, you know, I need to let him play himself into, you know, a better, a, a better position or gain some experience. So it's that gut feeling you yep. get. Yep. And it also depends on, you know, what kind of bird numbers do we have this year? Is it average, above average, great? Is it a bottom of the year? Bottom of the year, you got to just keep out walking them and try and be in the best habitat you can be in. Yeah. But I would typically say that, you know, if I'm in there for 20 minutes and I haven't moved a bird and there's nothing that really overly excites me about that cover or there's not some distant objective I want to get to or learn about, or experience, then it's kind of like, all right, let's cut our losses and get out of here. Got it. Right. So yeah, I'm probably a little impatient at times, but at other times I'm super, super patient because it just looks so good. They've Mm got to be here. I can just grind one out. Right. Yeah. So there's room, there's room for both there. There's room for both. Yeah. I typically am less patient and most patient in new covers, if that makes any sense. If I'm in a cover that, you know, I historically understand and I haven't moved a bird and that pattern's just not working today, let's bail, you know. Whereas a new cover, you're exploring, you're optimistic, you want to see, and if it looks good. Correct, if it feels good, right, yep. and it looks really good, I'm more apt to be patient. If it something just doesn't feel right, yep. like it just – it, it looked better out by the road than it is now that I'm in here a half mile, you know, mm-hmm. like things changed or it's starting to peter out. I, I'm less likely to grind that out than I am, you know, holy cow, it just keeps looking better and better and better, even though I'm not finding birds. Yep. 
Now that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And again, it does go back to the amount of experience you've got time on the ground, like that sixth sense about this feels right. You know, that gut instinct, that's not, you're not making that up. I know, I know that like, it's, it's just, you will get a sense for that having flushed lots of birds over lots of lots of years that's all going to play into what your confidence level in is in what you're looking at right awesome well keep keep fire what else you got let's see not that well okay so yeah you already talked about hazel brush i know you don't you guys don't have a lot of it over there right do you look at it when you come over here and laugh and think of me i, I do a little bit but i also <laughs> like I, I also you know rick and i were in a spot last year uh we named it shut the fuck up brad <laughs> Because uh, Brad was Brad was having a dog issue and screaming at his dog, and uh, but it was the heaviest hazel brush spot mm. I've probably ever hunted, yep. and, and I was frustrated uh, because I'm listening to Brad yell and I'm trying to fight my way through it, swimming but through it. What was fascinating is every time you got to like a super heavy, pa- extra heavy patch of it, even though like there weren't as many trees growing in it. Yep. There, there was birds in it. It was crazy. Yep. And so, you know, again, you just stay, I just stayed patient and was fortunate to get a couple of birds in there, but it is a, it is a key component when we travel to the Western end of the UP and over to Minnesota. I, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal ground cover yes. and we found birds, you know, I smiled when you said it the other day, like one day there was, it was like, a, I'm guessing a 50 year old Aspen cut with, pockets of spruce in it mm-hmm. but the whole thing was kind of like heavy hazel brush understory yep there was a lot of grouse in there i love that stuff a lot of grouse in there yeah now it's not easy walking because the hazel brush at that point is even thicker mm-hmm. yep right that's because all there is more sunlight yep. right but there was a lot of grouse in there yeah and you think about i mean again if you you found yourself swimming through stuff like that you know exactly what fritz and fritz is talking about it's it is unbelievable stem density right at the ground level and they're it's loaded with catkins and there's probably wild strawberry green leaves on the ground i mean it's it's unbelievable stuff yeah and the catkins that grow on that stuff they're like a white kind of bulb right yes yep yeah they're like they look like like, a tiny little pine cone basically but it's light right it's not yeah it's not what i would think of as a classic uh like an alder catkin yep yeah, there's lots of lots of little ones, and I always, I mean, I, I I think I actually have seen grouse up. They they'll hop up into those into those hazel brush and grab the grab the catkins and right. stuff. They're they're loading up on that stuff. Yeah, hazel brush, something to pay attention to if you've got it in your area. But then, like I say, you know, it's it's kind of everywhere here, so it's not like right. it's not like right. you're you're automatically going to find grouse. But it's a it's a it's an important component for sure. Yeah, you you've got in every grouse cover, you've got to have more than one component. Yes, that they need. It can't just be one component. It can't be just perfect aspen it, 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 without hazel brush in it. It can't, you know, it can't be, you know, uh, maple runs with what you know. It's got to have some two components to every cover to have success. I'm not saying you can't find birds and just right, you know single component covers but two components is better and three components is even better than that put a premium on the diversity right yep. how about this one should i walk trails or bust through brush what what's the pattern going on right now what time of the day is it how much pressure's in that area yep. 
there are no trails for the most part where I live. You have no choice but to bus brush. Hmm. Occasionally, I can find a pattern that I call the ditch. You know what I mean? Where they're living in a, you know, they're living along uh, cover and they're they're out towards the road edge where I'm hunting hunting them in the ditch and that that can be fun, but I don't find that pattern very often. So it's it's all about situational awareness. I mean, it's really nice to walk a trail and have your dog working both sides of it. And, or if you, you know, if I had a big going pointing dog, I'm not sure I'd get off a lot of trails, mm. uh, but it depends on how much pressure there is in the area The the ATV and four wheeler culture seems to be growing and growing and growing when I'm in the North and in the, you know, the UP. Yep. And so, uh, it really can pay dividends to walk into a cover and get off the trail and, and move to where you need to move. But sometimes, you know, has it rained for three days and there's clover growing on that trail and birds want to dry out, you know, and they haven't eaten as much as they needed to eat the last three days. Then yeah, walking that trail can be a lot of fun. You know, grass hunting's hard. You got to embrace the suck yep. if you want to be really successful at it and you got to, well, you know, be okay with being wet a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. but no, it, it, it just depends, right? I will tell you, I get far more enjoyment out of, you know, really challenging myself and busting brush and, and the dogs, but I don't have big running dogs. My dog's 40, 50 yards away, uh, you know, and it's it's dependent on the situation. That, that's a long ways for my dog. Most guys would call those bootlickers, you know, for pointing dogs. For I, pointing, I don't yeah. necessarily agree or not. I mean, yeah. if I'm getting a pointing dog, I'm not going to get it where it's going to point 40 yards away from me. I can get a flushing dog and be as effective doing that yeah. and get the dog to retrieve. No offense. Owners. <laughs> not, not taken for it. <laughs> I love it. There was one. Oh yeah. Speed of hunt. Now I know you've got a reputation for mo- moving, moving pretty good, and obviously yeah. you've talked about your dogs a little bit. But you know, I think everything we've talked about here today, it's like you've highlighted like a lot of it is a spectrum. It's not one or you know, it's not no trails, only bus brush, only walk the edges, don't go through the middle. It's you've got to you got to leverage your experience there. So like, when do you speed up? When do you slow down? Well, I typically probably walk at a pretty consistent pace mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. You know, so. I, I just naturally probably walk faster than most people do, certainly than most pointing dog people do who kind of move up and observe and let the dog work and cover cover. Whereas, you know, my dogs are working, uh, you know, a 40 yard boomerang from, you know, my right to my left and to the front. And, you know, that ground is getting covered. Yeah. I know that ground's getting covered. Yep. Exactly. And if I foot flush a bird, that would be like your dog's, you know, bumping one, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not happy. Like, I got gotcha. you. I'm not happy with foot flush birds. Or if I start getting birds backdooring me all the time, the dog's not doing their job. Yep. They're not applying the appropriate pattern to that cover. So I, it's just my nature, my driven nature that, you know, I work fast, right? Yeah. It's just how we do it. Cover a lot of ground and, and, and find the ones we can find and the ones that we don't find well good they're going to re- hopefully they reproduce next spring right right some of them are going to stay behind yeah no that i think that's that makes a lot of sense again you're you're working something and you know your dogs are covering it in front of you so that would in theory lead you to move faster whereas if my dog casts out 100 yards i know there's there's ground to my right or right in front of me that you know, I'm probably going to walk a little bit slower just to mm-hmm. give the dog time to cover it. And, you know, maybe I am going to foot flush something, which I'm not necessarily pissed about. But, you know, I went into a bowl last night 
that was so thick and I was standing out on the edge and I just stopped there for a second and let river work her way around in there. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then I heard wings and I didn't see wings. And then the bird came right out in the open and I shot it. I mean, <laughs> it came out so far in the open that I waited for yeah. it to get further away from me yeah. before I shot it. You know, so the, it's not like I'm constantly on a March, a death March, but you know, I, you know, if it's really likely and the dog's in there and it's super thick, I mean, again, this is the kind of spot that you're not walking through. I mean, if you, you're going to be scratched up and fighting when you come out of it mad, but she's in there rooting around and working and, she, you know, she kept staying in there. And so I kind of know, too, like, all right, the dog's still staying in there. You know, there might be something in there. And sure enough, she flushed out a bird. And, it, you know, again, it was so close to me that I, I waited for it to get out to 15, 18 yards before I killed it. Yeah. So reading the cover, observing what's around you and, and again, leveraging your experience and your instincts to, to know right. what to do. That's, that's hunting. That's hunting, right? It's, we use all five of our senses. Yep. That's what's really amazing about it. I mean, I walk into a spot and you can just tell, I, you just, you know, it smells like grouse in here, yep. right? Yep. Like, and that's your sense of smell going back in time, man. That's you're, you're yeah. connected there. Right. You know, it, like this time of the year here around our area, even though I, I rarely find it in their crops. And, and I rarely find birds in it in the afternoon, but like we get a lot of wild raisin. Okay. And it's just good. It, it just grows in good stem density. It grows where birds want to live and, and that stuff smells and it just smells like grouse in there. Right. You know, it just smells like there should be birds in here. Yeah. You got a powerful association there. How about autumn olive? Do you know, do you know what that is? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody sent me a picture yeah. of that. Not like, I don't think we, oh, maybe I, maybe I, I don't you think don't we have, have it. Here. The, the DNR in the state of Michigan started planning it as what they thought was a wildlife food source in southern Michigan game lands. Most likely when we still had strong wild pheasant populations, okay. you know, they, they probably tried to use it as shelter belts a little bit and it, and it grows prolific and it spreads. What happened is in southern Michigan, it will it will it will spread so fast it'll take over an entire open field yeah and make it a woody stemmy disaster and it it will do that in the north too in the north we have quite a bit of oil and gas exploration yep and part of the contract when you uh, get a lease on state or federal lands in the north was that you know when that when you were done digging that well you had to replant it right and for years, they used autumn olive to do that. And then it's just been dotted and spread. And But, it, you know, if I ever owned a, a chunk of land and I had the opportunity, the deal in the north is the forest is strong enough to keep it from wildly spreading everywhere. Okay. It, if it's going to spread, it needs an open field to really spread. Where in the north, it will, it, it'll kind of just hold its own. It'll fill in some of the gaps. It'll fill in some of the gaps, correct? But grouse love it. Yeah. They absolutely love it. Yep. They absolutely love it. And so that's kind of the history of autumn olive here. You get less and less of it the further north and and west you go into the upper peninsula. But the DNR started that program and it spread and it it is highly invasive to control. Mm, Yeah. Expensive. So, yeah, that's autumn olive. Our grouse love it. Yeah. A hard winter will, will kill it for like three years. Oh, really? 
a really hard winter will kill it for like three years. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, hey, remember when you were over here last year and you sent me the picture of that road name? Yeah. Somebody sent me a picture of that yesterday. Oh. <laughs> Did the, you ever go there? I have not been there. I know where it is. I know yeah. where it is now. Right. Uh, it's like <laughs> I won't. I won't say it because it's like I don't know if that's hot spot. He said. He said good bird numbers, lots of hunters. Is what he saw. But, huh. Yeah. But. Yeah, I don't think we'll go there th- this year. Maybe I. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think we moved a ton of. I, it, it, yeah, that's a good spot. Yeah, I can see that being better in November than in October. Mm, yeah, I always. Yeah, I always want to. I gotta. We'll see. You never know how the late season plays out, but I'd, right. I'd like to get get there later in the year. But they have a tendency to get some snow too. So, yeah. All right, man. Well, I thank you very much for your time today. I really yeah. appreciate no, it. No, it's good. Good catching up, and uh, absolutely. You know, go from there. Yep. Well, good deal, man. I appreciate right. it, as always. Be good, Nick. Yep, likewise. Have a good one, Fritz. We'll compare notes when and if I get home. <laughs> Sounds good, man. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.